Welcome to Sweden in Transition, the podcast that meets change makers in Sweden. I am Sonia Lehmann and today I meet Matthias Goldman. Matthias has been working on sustainability over the past 20 years, took part in several climate agreement negotiations and has been named Sweden's most influential in sustainability issues in 2016 and runner-up opinion maker of the year in 2017 and is now chief sustainability officer at SWECO. Hi Matthias, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you for doing this meeting. We are right in the middle of the coronavirus outbreak in Europe. It feels so weird to be actually sitting opposite a real person and, you know, not just on Skype. So I'm, I'm very glad to meet with someone. <laughs> <laughs> yes, me too. It's been a week now that yeah. we've been secluded in our homes. So, yeah, that's worth it. <laughs> But uh, just to reassure people, we're one meter away. Of that's each other. true. <laughs> Maybe to start then, what is your reading of what's happening at the moment? I think we're going through a terrible phase. I think we get to see the best and the worst sides of humanities and probably of ourselves as well. I think that once we're past the worst of it, there will be a possibility to discuss lessons learned for the long time future. I think now when I try to bring it up, people are reluctant or even aggressively telling me that now that lives are endangered, it's not the time to link Corona to long-term sustainability. Or, but I insist on starting to do that anyway. I don't think that's a lack of respect for everybody who's suffering. I think on the contrary, with all the suffering that we're seeing now, at least there needs to be something good coming out of it for it to be just slightly, slightly, slightly worth a little bit of the effort that we're sharing now. And I think when we look back in months or years to come, there's certainly going to be changes of habits that we're going to want to keep. We see that climate change is slowing down now. Emissions are down because of aviation is down and transport is down. We see that local air quality is a lot better in cities where usually you are hardly able to breathe the air. You can breathe freely now. We also see that a lot of the, uh, even though I'm glad that we met you and I here, we see that a lot of the things that we used to do as seminars work just as well, even better as webinars. And that working not all day, not every day from home, but working maybe once a week from home just helps you improve your life quality and makes it easier to get this jigsaw puzzle that life is to get those pieces together. So there's certainly going to be lessons learned and things that we want to keep. I think those who believe that we're just going to go back to business as usual after Corona, they're just plainly wrong. And what do you think it tells about our society and our system, its resilience? I think it tells us that on the one hand, it's very easy to disrupt the system. We see car factories shutting down because of lack of parts. On the other hand, we see that things do continue to work. Everything that we consider as basic societal services are actually still up and running. We see hopefully that the way to move forward is by helping each other. And I see some wonderful examples of how youngsters are helping the elderly and it's beautiful to see and also helps me to counteract this view of preppers where it's been seen as the way to survive is to be each one on his or her own and we clearly see now that that's not 
a nice way and it's not even a possible way to move forward. People are helping each other. People want to say thank you to yeah. people in hospitals who are helping out. But having said that, we also need to realize that the only free sort of basic food supplies that Sweden can sustain its own population with are sugar, potatoes and carrots. It's disappointing that we are not more self-sufficient in Sweden. Fossil fuels, that is always imported. It's also always bad for the climate. But when we move to renewable energy, there's an opportunity to do that in Sweden. And until now, we've not been using that opportunity. When we replace fossil petrol with ethanol, we import most of it. When we import fossil diesel with biodiesel, we import most of it from other parts of the world. And when we want to have sustainable aviation, until now, the biojet has come from California. So there's clearly a wasted opportunity there. And I don't want us to go too far in local. I see President Trump stressing that very hard, that it's America first, and we're not depending on anyone else. Sweden has a long and proud history of being very open towards other societies, being an export-oriented country. And if you export a lot, you also have to import a lot. Those things go hand in hand. So I don't want us to stop that. I just want us to have a few sort of basic supplies where we realize that it would be better to give work to the local farmer than to import it from farmers from across the globe. There is a big difference between the way the crisis is handled here in Sweden versus the rest of Europe. Can you explain why you think that is? Probably in a few days or weeks, sitting like we do now is no longer possible or still possible. We don't know. So rather than focusing on what Sweden is doing exactly now, what I see in Sweden now and what I like to build upon in terms of the sustainability uh, challenges is a belief in public authorities. And that belief is twofold. First of all, it comes from the politicians, where in most countries in Europe and, and around the world, the decisions around how to combat corona have been taken by leading politicians, who are great people in most cases, but are rarely the main experts on viruses and diseases. Whereas in Sweden, we've said, well, it's the public authority that's not led by politicians. It's not political decisions, but it's based on medical expertise, the suggestions and the advices and the prohibitions that are taken. And I would love for us to build upon that when it comes to long-term sustainability as well. And the second issue is the trust between the electorate and the elected, if you want, where when I used to say when I was in Chile recently, for instance, I said that I'm an ex-politician and people would at best frown and at worst leave the table because there is no trust in elected politicians in most countries. In Sweden, that trust is also diminishing, but we still have a level of trust that's fairly healthy in times like these. One of the reasons that we have that is that combating diseases and long-term challenges like climate change are all not all that politicized. We see that there's a strong division in most countries between the leader and the opposition and about how to deal with corona. In Sweden, we don't really have that. Well, we have eight parties in Sweden. One of them is mainly focused on reducing migration to Sweden. All the other seven parties agree on the exact same climate targets, which I think is is a sound basis for, for us as uh, as voters to really believe in the politicians because when it's really important, as combating corona is now and as combating climate change is in a longer term, we see that they rise to the occasion. How do you think this will affect our journey toward reducing climate change? 
Obviously, now any politician is forgiven if he or she focuses on combating corona right now. But they go hand in hand. The government is dishing out money to the aviation sector. I'm not saying that is wrong. I'm just saying that when we do that, there should be a sustainability part of the equation. I remember years back when Obama was president and he had to bail out the uh, U.S. automotive sector. And he said, I'm not going to bail you out if you continue doing gas guzzlers using fossil fuels, I'm going to bail you out with money that you need to use to help speed up the transition to electromobility. And I'm looking very much forward to the Swedish and other governments around the globe to say that the money that's needed to keep the industry afloat will not be given without conditions. It will be given with conditions that we need to go greener faster. In a previous talk, you say that people like you or like me, we have failed having the wrong communication. Corona shows we are ready to act if we understand that this is not for the benefit of someone else, somewhere else, some other time, but for me and my next of kin right here, right now. And climate change is actually also about right here, right now. But the way people like me have been portraying climate change over the years has been that we do combat climate change for the benefit of the polar bear, for the benefit of future generations as yet not born, for the benefit of sinking islands in the Pacific, uh, rather than here and now. So... Of course, we've made it more difficult rather than easier for people to act. And Corona shows that when people realize it has to do with me, people are ready to act. We've been talking about climate as something that is not concerning us here and now. You also mentioned guilt. Mm. How do you think we should handle guilt or maybe fear when we speak about those topics? Well, you mentioned that I was previously elected most important in sustainability issues or most powerful. Uh, that was before Greta. It's obviously Greta now. And I, I think there's no one even, even near the global influence that she has. It's, it's impressive. It's something that shows all of us what a difference we can make and what a difference we all should try and make. And I'm, I'm a huge fan. Having said that, I'm not convinced that Greta's way of communicating climate change is the most efficient uh, in at all levels of society. Very many people, millions and millions around the world, have changed their behavior thanks to Greta, but some have not. And I think that those who haven't are often middle-aged men in powerful positions. I think these decision-makers, they're well-off in society, they are often not attracted by the sense of, that you already mentioned, the sense of guilt, the sense of fear, the sense of panic, all those things that uh, Greta wants to convey. When I am soon to publish my book, it's going to be a li little bit delayed here due to the coronavirus, it's focusing on the seven deadly sins and how we can combat climate change by committing to all of them. Remember, those are not the not, those are not the ten the ten commandments, but the seven deadly sins, which is uh, greed, for instance. I think it's it's more relevant. It's nicer to do like Greta does and say that we should do this for the next person, for today's youth. But it's more realistic, I think, to try and find ways how you can improve your own position your own status, your economic well-being by doing things that help us combat climate change. So that's why I've been looking closely at all those seven deadly sins and trying 
to use them uh, to find ways for us to combat climate change faster because the way we've been trying until now has not gotten us anywhere near where we need to be in order to win against climate change because it's now a race against time. Another thing I reacted on when I was listening to your previous seminars or talks is the fact that you think Trump is actually the best asset we have <laughs> to mobilize people on climate change. Well, you know, sometimes you need to uh, shock people a little bit. So I really would prefer Trump not to be reelected. But it's been very important to have somebody as Trump to show us just how uh, impossible it is to uh, try and fight for fossil fuels the way that he's been doing. So Trump is the most powerful man in the world. He said, I was elected for Pittsburgh, not Paris. So he's not interested in the Paris Agreement on climate change, but he's interested in helping the coal mines to survive. And now that we've had Trump for three years, we can see that over those three years, uh, there's been more coal mines shut than any time in the American history. All the big five coal companies are either bankrupt or in receivership or Chapter 11. There's been more solar parks and wind parks opened than any time previously in the American history. Would have happened during Hillary Clinton or during Obama or during a, a red-green uh, political administration in Sweden, we would have said, well, Obviously, because there's, there's so many ways that the renewable energy is subsidized, for instance. But here, the subsidies went to the fossil fuels, and even so, they could not win. So that example can only be shown by a person such as Trump that we are really leaving fossil fuels behind now. So for that, we thank him. I think we also thank him because when he was opposing the Paris Climate Change Agreement, a lot of us became more committed to the agreement. The Chinese, the cities like New York, the states of the US like California and countries around the world said, well, if Trump is against it, we should really show that we are pro Paris. So sometimes you need a common enemy. And I don't think uh, in climate change, there's a better enemy to be had than, than Trump himself. <laughs> Yeah, there was a real reaction from the cities. So we were talking about the local and the fact that we need a reaction from the the territories and it needs to happen here on the ground. It was a wake-up call maybe and they felt that they if, if they wouldn't do it, nobody would. So yeah, it pushed them towards... And you have a French background and I think it's also very interesting to see how countries like France, when Trump was reducing the budget for climate research, President Macron of France immediately said, well, the these researchers are more than welcome to conduct their studies in France and managed to attract a lot of the best and the brightest researchers from the US. Mm. So clearly uh, there's countries around the world that see an opportunity when the US with Trump has sort of taken a backseat in terms of combating climate change. It's sad that the US decided that, but it's also impressive to see how that has helped other countries step forward. So you were saying earlier that uh, we will raise to the occasion like we are doing now for the corona. What are the concrete projects that you're seeing that reassure you that we can still deliver it? I'm, I'm worried uh, that we will rise to the occasion a bit too late because many people don't realize that the GHG gases uh, in the atmosphere stay there for a long time. A lot of us think that if we just stop tomorrow, it will be fine, so we can wait until tomorrow. 
But the longevity of uh, CO2, methane and other gases in the atmosphere means that I'm worried that we will uh, rise to the occasion a bit too late. Mm. Having said that, I think that uh, a lot of the things that we need to do in order to combat climate change are things that we also want to do. And that's why I think we will win. I think that many people who want a car will prefer an electric Tesla over a petrol-driven car. And we will get the emissions reductions as a byproduct. A lot of people who want to impress their neighbors want to put solar cells on the roof. Very few of them would want to put coal power in the in the basement. So a lot of the areas uh, want and need go together. And I think that's what needs to happen systematically if we are going to win this fight. Often it also makes economic sense to do the right thing. But we need to understand that we're not as rational as human beings that we might want to see ourselves. We don't do what's the economically most beneficial to us. Well, we do that when we buy cereals for maybe two euros. But all the important big decisions, we tend to not base on logical, rational reasoning, but for other factors. So that's why I insist on it. It has to be, it has to be seen as something that we want to do if we're going to win this. Really, you trust innovation, technology? I don't. I don't trust innovation. Uh, when people say that we need to focus on innovation, I say tick, tick, tick. There's not enough time for that. We need to use what's already there. By and large, we're going to combat climate change with things that are already there and certainly with instruments that are already there. I see a lot of great friends of mine say that we need to invent something else than market economy. I say that you underestimate how much in a rush we are. There's no time to innovate new things. We need to use what's already there, both in terms of systems and technologies. Over the past decades, what we've seen is that each time we try to decouple Mm. growth and uh, resource consumption, we've failed. So we've invented cars that consume less, but we bought more cars. Same with the phone, same with... So what makes you think that now we will be able to continue our journey toward prosperity, but lowering our impact on Earth? I think that the OECD exaggerates when they said that Sweden is the world champion in decoupling. But we have managed to increase our economy while decreasing our emissions. We have managed to leave the oil behind in all sectors except for transport. We still have transport ahead of us. And we have managed to show that there's a better life with reduced emissions. We have the highest CO2 tax in the world. That's been hugely beneficial to the industry. Nobody's against this tax anymore. But it was difficult in the beginning. So there's a sound basis to continue building upon. But you're very right in pointing out that we cannot have greener cars. We simply have more cars that we use more. So I'm excited about how we're moving into the shared economy now, where, for instance, with carpooling, the way they used to market themselves was that you should join a carpool, a car sharing scheme for the benefit of the climate. And then... I joined and not very many else did. But now they say, well, uh, car only when you need it. There's no need for you to service the car, to fill it with gas or to plug it in for charging or to wash it or to find parking. All of that and many other things are taken care of. Uh, so in times where it's hard to get your life puzzle together, I think solutions like that are usually beneficial to us as individuals for the lifestyle that we want to lead. And since an, an average car is unused 96% of the time, there is an incredible potential for uh, more efficient usage by sharing. 
And since that frees up time and it also frees up money in our pockets when we don't have to own things and buy things, but rather just pay for the time that we use them. I think that that's where we find tomorrow's solutions. We, the technology has already become more efficient. Now we need to have more efficient ways of using technology. So if I extend your reasoning to overconsumption of clothes, yeah. for example, you can imagine that instead of saying uh, you should stop fast fashion, that's just waste of resources and bad uh, social impact on workers on the other side of the globe, you should basically say declutter, buy less, save time, save money. Mm-hmm. And enjoy life a million times more because you will enjoy doing other things than mm. doing your shopping in big malls. So that's basically what you think is going to happen. The tipping I think point. it is going to happen. For instance, if you look at if we go, we're not going to go skiing anytime soon. But when we go skiing, for a lot of us, it's natural to rent the skis there. It means that you always have the newest skis. You can pay extra to get the best skis that you couldn't afford otherwise. They're always sharpened so you can use them even if it's icy and you don't have to carry them with you. Just leave them once you're done. And I'm sure that's going to happen with the skiing clothes as well. Houdini, for instance, a Swedish company is already doing that. They're renting out the skiing clothes that you, the days you need them rather than you just own them all year, which means they always have the best and the newest gear. So I'm, uh, I'm convinced that's going to happen in a lot of sectors where we haven't seen it yet. I also see that last year's biggest trend was, I forgot her name, this Japanese woman who was showing how we could... You know, Marie dig- Kumbo, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> she, so she didn't do it from a climate perspective at all. But the, but, but the lesson that she's teaching us is to have less and to have it in a perfect order so you, on, you only have what you need, mm. which is great for climate change. So if we go back to your area of expertise, which mm-hmm. is transport, what is the new mobility? We're not going to stop traveling, are we? I'm, I'm worried that we are going to stop traveling. Right, right now, none of us are traveling. Uh, even just getting to the office here for a meeting, well, I was reluctant. And most people would have said, well, don't do it. Stay at home. That's the general advice that's out there now. So for the time being, we are going to stop traveling. And that means that once this is over and done with, we're going to travel probably more consciously. We're going to say, well, this conference, let, let me, let me just follow that on Skype instead or on Teams or any of those platforms. We are also realizing that the main contaminant or a big contaminant for, for Corona was sitting in airplanes with the air being recycled and recirculated over and over and over again. Uh, so for other reasons than climate, we're also going to be more reluctant about flying. Is going to give a boom that's already happening before Corona to uh, other other modes of transport, mainly the train. We're probably going to travel less. We're going to travel more sustainably. We all both already mentioned the electric cars and the trains. But I'm also worried that uh, after Corona, a lot of us are going to think that all modes of public transport is a possible contaminant. We see right now that we're not moving much, but several people have been telling me I prefer to be in my private car rather than in the subway or the bus because I don't want to be too close to other people. Some companies gave that as guidelines. Yeah, so that wouldn't be good for sustainability. It would probably not be. I think we're going to wake up and realize that there are going to be shared spaces anyway. 
even if it's not the subway, well, then it's the office. Even if it's not the office, it's the shop and so forth. So there is fortunately no way that we can isolate ourselves. But public transport clearly has a, a challenge here to prove that it's sustainable from our own health, the way it's sustainable for climate change to use. I saw you uh, probably on the social media taking picture of yourself doing a big travel by train yeah. and explaining that actually that's the most efficient way to travel because you have time to work on the train, which you can't really do when you're flying. It was difficult to, for me because I was speaking Friday afternoon in the north of Sweden in Luleå and I was speaking Monday early morning in Barcelona. And then at first I said to someone, Well, obviously, I can't get there on time by train, so I'm going to have to fly. But then I heard myself say that, so I checked it out through barn.com, which is the best place to find train schedules, and I could make it, and I did make it. So I took the train all the way from northern Sweden to Barcelona. It took Friday afternoon to Sunday afternoon. It was wonderful. I had two hours in Copenhagen. I could see my dad just outside of Geneva in Lyon, and I came in time for tapas in Barcelona and actually to go see Barcelona play at the at the stadium there Sunday evening. And, and then a lot of people told me, Oh, it's wonderful what you're doing to combat climate change. And I was like, no, I did it for my own benefit. I wanted to enjoy the travel. I wanted to have those stopovers. And I, just like you mentioned, I needed that time to actually finish the manuscript for my book. That was the one time I had two days uninterrupted, nobody talking to me, nobody calling me because I could pretend that there was no signal on the train. So I could just finally do the last parts of my book. Great. You touched on that already. Sweden has a very strong reputation on sustainability. I wanted to know if you think that was deserved and uh, what were the strengths and what are the areas where Sweden is not so good? So after the Paris Agreement, the eight party, party number eight, which is more on a xenophobic side, they were not so interested. But all the other seven parties got together to decide on Sweden's climate targets. And when they realized that Sweden is only responsible for 0.15% of global CO2 emissions, they also realized that the only way we can make a difference is by being a role model for other countries, like being a permanent climate exhibition or a global help desk to call in climate issues. And I think that's very wise of those seven parties, from the left party to the conservatives, to uh, to uh, agree on Sweden as a role model and to set the climate targets that we have, climate neutral 2045, a fossil-free transport sector 2030. Uh, it has helped. We see that a lot of countries companies are looking at Sweden, are launching their products first in Sweden, are doing their research and development in Sweden. But we're also seeing that they're starting to look at our figures a bit closer and saying that you're nowhere near, dear Sweden, to reach those targets. And of course, we're not going to be a role model forever by claiming that we want to be, be that, that we want to be leaders, but we have to have the emissions reductions that go in line with that. Last year, 2019, Sweden's CO2 emissions dropped by around 2%. They need to drop by around 7% a year for us to reach those targets. And of course, if they don't start doing that, other countries and businesses and consumers are going to start look elsewhere for inspiration. So we need to step up the speed in which we reduce our emissions. As an outsider, I see a big strength in Sweden is the trust in the government yeah. and the institution. And the citizens really follow the lead of their leaders. 
we can really believe that once the decisions are made and the plans are acted, then it will go and go fast and everybody will follow. In France, it's the opposite. The <laughs> population is convinced that the government is really, you know, far away from what yeah. should be done. But virtue of that is that citizens get mobilized at a local level. There are really many initiatives and mayors are also taking the lead. We see a, a tipping point. And I think it's really interesting because uh, we need both. We need the leaders and we need the citizens. I've been uh, I've been uh, impressed with just what you mentioned. My father and my belle-mère, uh, they live in a small French municipality a bit outside of Geneva. And even in this tiny municipality, they had discussions when there was Le Grand Débat. Uh, so they had discussions about the future France they want and sustainability and climate change was right up there. I'm actually also... I don't agree with them, but I've also, at least in the beginning, been fairly impressed with the uh, yellow vests. I think now there's all kinds of weird people in there. They mix up all kinds of things that I disagree with. But the way they said it in the beginning was that we want to combat climate change as much as anyone else, but we can't do it in a way where the poor people on the countryside suffer and the high-income hipsters like myself uh, win. And I think that's a super important signal to decision makers, not only in France, but in Sweden also and around the world, that we need to have a sense of climate justice. And I think that message, we needed the Yellow Vests to understand that. It's been understood now. We see now that the climate target of the European Union has a leave no one behind phrase, where they're especially helping out Poland, for instance, which is very dependent on coal. The northern Sweden, for instance, where we're very dependent on cars for long-distance transports. So if we're going to move faster with climate change, and we have to move faster, we need to understand the realities of the not-so-well-off. And I think that message has been better understood and better communicated in France than in most other countries. Now we see that we're in the beginning of a new financial crisis, economic crisis, and we see all leaders of our countries ready to do almost anything to save the growth. Do you think we can have eternal growth in a limited planet? When we look at the targets that any given country, let's use Sweden as an example, have, we have specific targets for unemployment. We have specific targets. We have 16 environmental targets. On a global level, we have 17 sustainable development goals. Sweden does not have a target for economic growth. And most countries, in fact, do not have that. Economic growth becomes what it becomes. There's no, there's no target as such. Uh, parts of the system are dependent on some sort of economic growth. That's what you and I rely on for our pensions when we retire. But the targets are much more clear and much more demanding when it comes to other areas. Now, is there going to be economic growth in the future? Right now with Corona, uh, I guess many of us worry about it. But when I see what I believe will be a driving force for economic growth, I see it's the shift from non-renewable to renewable, closing down oil and coal and going to solar and wind stopping to use fossil-powered cars and moving into electromobility and high-speed trains and other sorts of transports of, the, of tomorrow, that is, whether you like it or not, that's going to be a big driver for the economy. Just continuing to doing what we've been doing over the decades, 
that's why economic growth has declined in most uh, mature economies. So it's only the shift that I want to see, that I see as a potential driver for economic growth. I'm not necessarily excited about the growth in itself. I'm excited about the switch and that's going to give us that, give us that growth. And maybe what Corona underlines is the importance of health, healthcare, yeah. <laughs> education, and maybe art. Because when we are confined in our homes, what do we care about? We want our kids to continue to grow and, mm -hmm. and learn. We want to make sure that uh, we're going to keep uh, the best health. And then we want to continue to grow ourselves by learning, reading, and maybe gathering, but gathering in, in the best uh, convivial way. And that's, that helps us underline what is really of value. Yeah. And I think what you're pointing out as uh, important to many of us is great because those things that you mentioned have a very low carbon impact. Those things that you mentioned are perfectly in line with a low carbon society or climate friendly society where we value the company of each other more, where we value art and culture more and where we value the education of our kids so the continuous education of ourselves as well more so i'm glad that a lot of people are probably going to realize that over the coming weeks and months that it is perhaps not always the long distance travel or the big car that we really value and really need to see ourselves as as fulfilled it's other areas and those areas are compatible with a, a smart future Last question to conclude. Mm -hmm. If you have a quote or a book you want to share. My favorite book is a thin one. It's called The Life You Can Save by philosopher Peter Singer. He shows that it really doesn't take much money to help somebody else. But he also shows that you are not supposed to spend every last dime or nickel to help somebody else. You need to focus on yourself as well because if you only help others nobody's going to do what you do so in order to become examples and role models for others we want to be sort of reachable and over the years i've come to realize that that is very true because when i as an eight-year-old became a very strict vegetarian and complained about everybody else not being vegetarians the only thing that happened was that nobody wanted to sit next to me at dinners uh, over the years i've tried to be uh I fail, but sometimes I manage to do just a little bit better than the average. And then people can say, well, if he can, so can I. So I think that book shows us that we have uh, an opportunity to be helpful to others, an opportunity to make a difference. And the way we make that difference is by doing what others can be inspired by and can learn from and can also do. Thank you. Thank you very much for this interview. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. And I'm very excited that you do this podcast because especially in times like these with Corona, listening, sitting down and thinking for yourself about what the life we're going to have after this crisis is more important than ever. And pods like this can hopefully be helpful. Thank you. <laughs> A big thank you to Matthias Goldman. I'm very glad we could maintain this discussion. And thanks a lot to you for taking the time. Please go discover the other episodes already published. I also invite you to subscribe on your favorite app and to leave a comment or a rating, five star if possible, to support the podcast and help me make it more visible. Bye bye.